Section six of Status Quo by Mac Reynolds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Section six. The American plainclothesman stationed near the entrance gave him only a quick once over as he passed. Inside the gates, the impassive Russian guards didn't bother to flicker an eyelid. At the reception desk in the immense entrada he identified himself. I'd like to see Colonel Frol Ivazov. I am afraid, the clerk began stiffly. I suppose you have him on the records as Clement Ivazov. The clerk had evidently touched a concealed button. A door opened and a junior embassy official approached them. Larry restated his desire. The other began to open his mouth in denial then shrugged. Just a moment, he said. He was gone a full twenty minutes. When he returned, he said briefly, This way, please. Frol Ivazov was in an inner office, in full uniform. He came to his feet when Larry Wolford entered, and said to the clerk, That will be all, Vova. He was a tall man, as Slavs go, but heavy of build and heavy of face. He shook hands with Larry. "'It's been a long time,' he said in perfect English. "'That conference in Warsaw, wasn't it? Have a chair, Mr. Wolford.' Larry took the offered chair and said, "'How in the world did you expect to get by with this nonsense? We'll have you declared persona non grata in a matter of hours.' "'It's not important,' Ivasov shrugged. "'I have found what I came to find. I was about to return to report anyway.' "'We won't do anything to hinder you, Colonel,' Larry said dryly. Ivazov snapped his fingers. "'It's all amusing,' he said. "'In our country we would quickly deal with this movement nonsense. "'You Americans with your pseudo-democracy, your labels without reality, your—' "'Larry said wearily, "'Please, Frol, I promise not to convert you if you promise not to convert me.' Needless to say, my department isn't happy about your presence in this country. You'll be watched from now on. We've been busy with other matters. Here the Russian laughed. Or we'd already have flushed you. He allowed his voice to go curious. We've wondered about your interest in this phase of our internal affairs. The Russian agent let his façade slip over farther, his heavy lips sneering. We are interested in all phases of your antiquated socio-economic system, Mr. Wolford. In the present peaceful economic competition between East and West, we would simply loathe to see anything happen to your present culture. He hesitated deliberately. If you can call it a culture. Larry said, unprovoked, if I understand you correctly, you are not in favor of the changes the movement advocates. The Russian shrugged hugely. I doubt if they are possible of achievement. The organization is a sloppy one. Revolutionary? Nonsense! He scoffed. They have no plans to change the government. No plans for overthrowing the regime. Ultimately, what this country needs is true communism. This so-called movement doesn't have that as its eventual goal. It is laughable. Larry said interestedly, then perhaps you'll tell me what little you found out about the group. 
Why not? The Russian pursed his lips. They are composed of impractical idealists, scientists, intellectuals, a few admitted scholars, and even a few potential leaders. Their sabotage of your Department of Records was an amusing farce, but frankly I have been unable to discover the purpose of their interest in rockets. For a time I contemplated the possibility that they had a scheme to develop a nuclear bomb, and to explode it over Greater Washington, in the belief that in the resulting confusion they might seize power. But on the face of it their membership is incapable of such an effort. Their interest in rockets, Larry said softly. Yes, as you've undoubtedly discovered, half the rocket technicians of your country seem to have joined with them. We got the tip through. The Russian cleared his throat. Several of our converts, who happen to be connected with your space efforts groups. Is that so? Larry said. I wondered what you thought about their interest in money. It was the other's turn to look blank. Money? he said. That's right, large quantities of money. The Russian said, frowning. I suppose most citizens in your capitalist countries are interested largely in money, one of your basic failings. Driving back to the office, Larry Wolford let it pile up on him. Ernest Self had been a specialist in solid fuel for rockets. When Larry had questioned Professor Voss, that worthy had particularly stressed his indignation at how Professor Goddard, the rocket pioneer, had been treated by his contemporaries. Franklin Nostrand had been employed as a technician on rocket research at Madison Air Laboratories. It was too darn much for coincidence. And now something else that had been nagging away at the back of his mind suddenly came clear. Susan Self had said that she and her father had seen the precision dancers at the New Roxy Theater in New York, and later the professor had said they were going to spend the money on chorus girls. Susan had got it wrong. The Rockettes, the precision chorus girls. The professor had said they were going to spend the money on rockets, and Susan had misunderstood. But billions of dollars expended on rockets? How? But above all, to what end? If he'd only been able to hold on to Susan, or her father, or to Voss or Nostrand for that matter, someone to work on. But each had slipped through his fingers. Which brought something else up from his subconscious, something which had been tugging at him. At the office, Irene Day was packing her things as he entered, packing as though she was leaving for good. "'What goes on?' Larry growled. "'I'm going to be needing you. Things are coming to a head.' She said, a bit snippishly, Larry thought, "'Miss Polk in the boss's office said for you to see her as soon as you came in, Mr. Wolford.' "'Oh?' He made his way to Laverne's office his attention actually on the ideas churning in his mind. She looked up when he entered. Larry said, The boss wanted to see me. Laverne ducked her head as though embarrassed. Not exactly, Larry. He gestured with his thumb in the direction of his own cubicle office. 
Irene just said you wanted me. Laverne looked up into his face. The boss and Mr. Foster, too, are boiling about your authorizing that Distelmeyer man to build this department for information he gave you. The boss hit the roof. Something about the Senate Appropriations Committee getting down on him if it came out that we bought information from professional espionage agents. Larry said, It was information we needed, and Foster gave me the go-ahead on locating Frau Ivazov. Maybe I'd better see the boss. Laverne said, I don't think he wants to see you, Larry. They're up to their ears in this movement thing. It's in the papers now, and nobody knows what to do next. The president is going to make a speech on Tri-D, and the boss has to supply the information. His orders are for you to resume your vacation, to take a month off and then see him when you get back. Larry sank down into a chair. I see, he said, and at that time he'll probably transfer me to janitor service. Larry, Laverne said, almost impatiently, why in the world didn't you take that job while Foster has now, when the boss offered it to you? Because I'm stupid, I suppose, Larry said bitterly. I thought I could do more working alone than at an administrative post tangled in red tape and bureaucratic routine. She said, Sorry, Larry. She sounded as though she meant it. Larry stood up. Well, tonight I'm going to hang one on, and tomorrow it's back to Florida. He said in a rush, Look, Laverne, how about that date we've been talking about for six months or more? She looked up at him. I can't stand vodka martinis. Neither can I he said glumly. And I don't get a kick out of prancing around, a stuffed shirt among fellow stuffed shirts, at some goings-on that supposedly improves my culture status. Larry said, At the house I have every known brand of drinkable, and a stack of, what did you call it, corny music. We can mix our own drinks and dance all by ourselves. She tucked her head to one side, and looked at him suspiciously. Are your intentions honorable? We can even discuss that later, he said sourly. She laughed. It's a date, Larry. He picked her up after work, and they drove to his brandywine auto bungalow, largely quiet the whole way. At one point she touched his hand with hers, and said, It'll work out, Larry. Yeah, he said sourly, I've put ten years into ingratiating myself with the boss. Now overnight he's got a new boy. I suppose there's some moral involved. When they pulled up before his auto bungalow, Laverne whistled appreciatively. Quite a neighborhood you're in. He grunted. A good address. What our friend Professor Voss would call one more status symbol, one more social label. For it I pay about fifty percent more rent than my budget can afford. He ushered her inside and took her jacket. Look, he said, indicating his living room with a sweep of hand. See that volume of Klee reproductions there next to my reading chair? That proves I'm not a weird. Indicates my culture status. 
Actually, my appreciation of modern art doesn't go any further than the Impressionists. But don't tell anybody. See those books up on my shelves. Same thing. You'll find everything there that ought to be on the shelves of any ambitious young career man. She looked at him from the side of her eyes. You're really soured, Larry. Come along, he said. I want to show you something. He took her down the tiny elevator to his den. How hypocritical can you get? he asked her. This is where I really live, but I seldom bring anyone here. Wouldn't want to get a reputation as a weird. Sit down, Laverne, I'll make a drink. How about a sidecar? She sank onto the couch, kicked her shoes off, and slipped her feet under her. I'd love one, she said. His back to her, he brought brandy and Cointreau from his liquor cabinet, lemon and ice from the tiny refrigerator. What? Laverne said mockingly. No autobar? Upstairs with the rest of the status symbols, Larry grunted. He put her drink before her and turned and went to the record player. In the way of corny music, how do you like that old-timer Nat Cole? King Cole? Love him, Laverne said. The strains of For All We Know penetrated the room. Larry sat down across from her, finished half his drink in one swallow. I'm beginning to wonder whether or not this movement doesn't have something, he said. She didn't answer that. They sat in silence for a while, appreciating the drink. Nat Cole was singing, the very thought of you now. Larry got up and made two more cocktails. This time he sat next to her. He leaned his head back on the couch and closed his eyes. Finally, he said softly, When Steve Hackett and I were questioning Susan, there was only one other person who knew that we'd picked her up. There was only one person other than Steve and me who could have warned Ernest's self to make a getaway. Later on, there was only one person who could have warned Frank Nostrand so that he and the professor could find a new hideout. She said sleepily, How long have you known about that, darling? A while, Larry said, his own voice quiet. I figured it out when I also decided how Susan's self was spirited out of the greater Washington Hilton before we had the time to question her further. Somebody who had access to tapes made of me while I was making phone calls cut out a section and dubbed in a voice so that Betsy Hughes, the Secret Service matron who was watching Susan, was fooled into believing it was I ordering the girl to be turned over to the two movement members who came to get her. Laverne stirred comfortably and let her head sink onto his shoulder. You're so warm and comfortable, she said. Larry said softly, What does the movement expect to do with all that counterfeit money, Laverne? She stirred against his shoulder, as though bothered by the need to talk. Give it all away, she said. Distribute it all over the country, and destroy the nation's social currency. It took him a long moment to assimilate that. What have the rockets to do with it? She stirred once again, as though wishing he'd be silent. 
that's how it will be distributed. About twenty rockets, strategically placed, each with a warhead of a couple of tons of money, fired to an altitude of a couple of hundred miles, and then the money is spewed out. In falling it will be distributed over cities and countryside everywhere. Billions upon billions of dollars' worth. Larry said, so softly as hardly to be heard, What will that accomplish? Money is the greatest social label of them all. The professor believes that through this step the movement will have accomplished its purpose, that people will be forced to utilize their judgment rather than depend upon social labels. Larry didn't follow that, but he had no time to go further now. He said, still evenly soft, And when is the movement going to do this? Laverne moved comfortably. The trucks go out to distribute the money tonight. The rockets are waiting. The firing will take place in a few days. And where is the professor now? Where the money and the trucks are hidden, darling. What difference does it make? Laverne said sleepily. And where is that? At the Greater Washington Trucking Corporation. It's owned by one of the movement's members. He said, There's a password. What is it? Judgment. Larry Wolford bounced to his feet. He looked down at her, then over at the phone. In three quick steps he was over to it. He grasped its wires and yanked them from the wall, silencing it. He slipped into the tiny elevator, locking the door to the den behind him. As the door slid closed, her voice wailed, still sleepily husky. Larry, darling, where are you? He ran down the walk of the house, vaulted into the car, and snapped on its key. He slammed down the lift lever, kicked the thrust pedal, and was thrown back against the seat by the acceleration. Even while he was climbing, he flicked on the radio phone, called personal service for the location of the Greater Washington Trucking Corporation. Fifteen minutes later, he parked a block away from his destination, noting with satisfaction that it was still an hour or more to go until dark. His intuition, working double time now, told him that they'd probably wait until nightfall to start their money-laden trucks to rolling. He hesitated momentarily before turning on the phone and dialing the boss's home address. When the other's face faded in, it failed to display pleasure when the caller's identity was established. His superior growled, "'Confound it, Wolford! You know my privacy is to be respected. This phone is to be used only in extreme emergency.' "'Yes, sir,' Larry said briskly. "'It's the movement.' The other's face darkened still further. You're not on that assignment any longer, Wolford. Walter Foster has taken over, and I'm sympathetic to his complaints that you've proven more a hindrance than anything else. Larry ignored his words. Sir, I've tracked them down. Professor Voss is at the Greater Washington Trucking Corporation garages here in the Alexandria section of town. Any moment now, they're going to start distribution of all that counterfeit money on some scatterbrain plan to disrupt the country's exchange system. Suddenly alert, the department chief snapped. Where are you, Wolford? 
outside the garages, sir, but I'm going in now. You stay where you are, the other snapped. I'll have every department man and every secret service man in town over there within twenty minutes. You hang on. Those people are lunatics and probably desperate. Inwardly, Larry Wolford grinned. He wasn't going to lose this opportunity to finish up the job with him on top. He said flatly, Sir, we can't chance it. They might escape. I'm going in. He flicked off the set, dialed again, and raised Sam Sokolsky. Sam, he said, his voice clipped, I've cornered the movement's leader and am going in for the finish. Maybe some of you journalist boys better get on over here. He gave the other the address and flicked off before there were any questions. From the dash compartment he brought a heavy automatic and checked the clip. He put it in his hip pocket and left the car and walked toward the garages. Time was running out now. He strode into the only open door without shift of pace. Two men were posted nearby, neither of them truck men by appearance. They looked at him in surprise. Larry clipped out, The password is judgment. I've got to see Professor Voss immediately. One of them frowned questioningly, but the other was taken up with the urgency in Wolford's voice. He nodded with his head. He's over there in the office. Now ignoring them completely, Larry strode past the long rows of sealed delivery vans toward the office. He pushed the door open, entered, and closed it behind him. Professor Peter Voss was seated at a paper-littered desk. There was a cot with an army blanket in a corner of the room, some soiled clothing, and two or three dirty dishes on a tray. The room was being lived in, obviously. At the agent's entry, the little man looked up and blinked in distress through his heavy lenses. Larry snapped, You're under arrest, Voss. The professor was obviously dismayed, but he said in as vigorous a voice as he could muster, Nonsense! On what charge? Counterfeiting among many. Your whole scheme has fallen apart, Voss. You and your movement, so-called, are finished. The professor's eyes darted left, right. To Larry Wolford's surprise, the movement's leader was alone in here. Undoubtedly he was awaiting others, drivers of the trucks, technicians involved in the rockets, other subordinates. But right now he was alone. If Wolford correctly diagnosed the situation, Voss was playing for time, waiting for the others. Good enough, so was Larry Wolford. Had the professor only known it, a shout would have brought at least two followers, and the government agent would have had his work cut out for him. Wolford played along. Just what is this fantastic scheme of yours for raining down money over half the country, Voss? The very insanity of it proves your whole outfit is composed of a bunch of nonconformist weirds. The professor was indignant, and stalling for time. He said, Nonconformists is correct. He who conforms in an incompetent society is an incompetent himself. Larry stood, his legs apart and hands on hips. He shook his head in simulated pity at the angry little man. What's all this about raining money down over the country? Don't you see? the other said. 
the perfect method for disrupting our present system of social labels. With billions of dollars, perfect counterfeit, strewing the streets, the fields, the trees, available for anyone to pick up, all social currency becomes worthless, utterly unusable, and it's no use to attempt to print more with another design, because we can duplicate it as well. Our experts are the world's best. We're not a group of sulking criminals, but capable, trained, dedicated men. Very well. We will have made it absolutely impossible to have any form of mass-produced social currency. Larry stared at him. It would completely foul the whole business system. You'd have chaos. At first, private individuals, once the value of money was seen to be zero, would have lost the amount of cash they had on hand. But banks and such institutions would lose little. They have accurate records that show the actual values they held at the time our money rains down. Larry was bewildered. But what are you getting at? What do you expect to accomplish? The professor, on his favorite subject, said triumphantly, the only form of currency that can be used under these conditions is the personal check. It's not mass-produced, and a mass production can't duplicate it. It's immune to the attack. Business has to go on, or people will starve. So personal checks will have to replace paper money. Credit cards and traveler's checks won't do. We can counterfeit them, too, and will if necessary. Realize, of course, that hard money will still be valid, but it can't be utilized practically for any but small transactions. Try taking enough silver dollars to buy a refrigerator down to the store with you. But what's the purpose? Larry demanded, flabbergasted. Isn't it obvious? Our whole movement is devoted to the destruction of social label judgments. It's all very well to say you should not judge your fellow men. But when it comes to accepting another man's personal check, friend, you damn well have to. The bum check artist might have a field day to begin with, but only to begin with. Larry shook his head in exasperation. You people are a bunch of anarchists, he accused. No, the professor denied, absolutely not. We are the antithesis of the anarchist. The anarchist says no man is capable of judging another. We say each man must judge his fellow, must demand proper evaluation of him. To judge a man by his clothes, the amount of money he owns, the car he drives, the neighborhood in which he lives, or the society he keeps, is out of the question in a vital culture. Larry said sourly, Well, whether or not you're right, Voss, you've lost. This place is surrounded. My men will be breaking in shortly. Voss laughed at him. Nonsense! All you've done is prevent us from accomplishing this portion of our program. What will you do after my arrest? You'll bring me to trial. Do you remember the Scopes Monkey Trial back in the 1920s, which became a world-appreciated farce and made Tennessee a laughingstock? Well, just wait until you get me into court, backed by my organization's resources. We'll bring home to every thinking person, not only in this country, but in the world, the fantastic qualities of our existing culture. Why, Mr. Secret Agent of Anti-Subversive Activity, 
You aren't doing me an injury by giving me the opportunity to have my day in court. You're doing me a favor. Newspapers, radios, tridee will give me the chance to expound my program in the home of every thinking person in the world. There was a fiery dedication in the little man's eyes. This will be my victory, not my defeat. There were sounds now coming from the other rooms, the garages, some shouts and scuffling. Faintly, Larry Wolford could hear Steve Hackett's voice. He was staring at the professor, his eyes narrower. The professor was on his feet. He said in defiant triumph, You think that you'll win prestige and honor as a result of tracking the movement down, don't you, Mr. Wolford? Well, let me tell you, you won't. In six months from now, Mr. Wolford, you'll be a laughingstock. That did it. Larry said, You're under arrest. Turn around with your back to me. The professor snorted his contempt, turned his back and held up his hands, obviously expecting to be searched. In a fluid motion, Larry Wolford drew his gun and fired twice. The other, with no more than a grunt of surprise and pain, stumbled forward to his knees and then to the floor, his arms and legs akimbo. The door broke open, and Steve Hackett, gun in hand, burst in. Wolford, he barked, what's up? Larry indicated the body on the floor. There you are, Steve, he said, the head of the counterfeit ring. He was trying to escape. I had to shoot him. Behind Steve Hackett crowded Ben Ruthenberg of the FBI, and behind him half a dozen others of various departments. The boss came pushing his way through. He glared down at the professor's body, then up at Larry Wolford. Good work, Lawrence, he said. How did you bring it off? Larry replaced the gun in his holster and shrugged modestly. The Polk girl gave me the final tip-off, sir. I gave her some scop serum in a drink, and she talked. Evidently she was a member of the movement. The boss nodded wisely. I've had my eye on her, Lawrence. An obvious weird. But we will have to suppress that scop serum angle. He slapped his favorite field man on the arm jovially. Well, boy, this means promotion, of course. Larry grinned. Thanks, sir. All in a day's work. I don't think we'll have much trouble with the remnants of this movement thing. The pitch is to treat them as counterfeiters, not subversives. Try them for that. Their silly explanations of what they were going to do with the money will never be taken seriously. He looked down at the small corpse. Particularly now that their kingpin is gone. A new wave of agents, FBI men, and prisoners washed into the room, and Steve Hackett and Larry were for a moment pushed back into a corner by themselves. Steve looked at him strangely and said, There's one thing I'd like to know. Did you really have to shoot him, Wolford? Larry brushed it off. What's the difference? He was as weird as they come, wasn't he? End of Section 6 End of Status Quo by Mac Reynolds 
Recorded by Peter Eastman. 2015. Thank you for listening.